My delight will be in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. From the 119th Psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On this day, this All Hallows' Eve, on the eve of All Saints, we give thanks to God for the work of his saints. And thank you, children, for reminding us of God's great saints. And that as we process into worship each day, we follow a great heavenly company. And I would invite you maybe to uh, pull a child aside at some point today and ask them about the saint they're dressed up as. I'm sure they'll have a lot to tell you. I've already learned a lot about saints I'd never even heard of this morning. Thanks be to God. One of the best books ever written in moral philosophy and theological ethics, in my humble opinion, is a short book an introduction to ethics, actually, written in 1968 by the English Dominican priest Herbert McCabe. The book is called Law, Love, and Language because, as McCabe argues in it, the ethical life can be basically understood as involving three activities, loving, obeying laws, and talking to people. Law, love, and language. That's the stuff of moral life. And it's also at the heart of Jesus's teaching in St. Mark's Gospel this morning. Jesus finds himself in a discussion about the meaning of the law, the Torah. He pivots to a discussion about love. And in so doing, he gives us a new language for thinking about ourselves and our relationships and obligations to others and to God. So Jesus is in the temple. He's already marched triumphantly into Jerusalem and been celebrated by the crowds who shout Hosanna and cry for salvation. He's cleansed the temple, driving out buyers and sellers, money changers and retailers, causing a scene and generating a lot of attention, both from the crowds who, Mark tells us, were spellbound by his teachings, as well as from the scribes and chief priests who, Mark says, were afraid of him and thus began looking for a way to kill him. They proceed to assault him with questions and riddles, first from the chief priests, then the Pharisees and the Herodians, then the Sadducees, and finally the scribes, each trying to trick Jesus into misspeaking, exposing him to charges of heresy or sedition. What's the source of your teaching authority? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection? When will Jesus slip up? Jesus' interactions with these Jewish religious authorities on each of these matters is brilliant, deft. He evades their attacks, eludes being pinned into corners, and responds with cryptic answers that make his opponents appear dumbfounded. I'll tell you where my teaching authority comes from if you tell me what you think about the validity of the controversial John the Baptist's work. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Clear enough, maybe. In the resurrection, men and women neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven, of course. And in each case, Jesus refuses to be sucked into a game that he can only lose. 
He overturns the tables on which these conversations are set for him, and he turns his opponents' disingenuous questions into occasions to reveal their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Except for the last question. One of the scribes approaches Jesus and asks, which commandment is the most important of all? This is not a trick question. Mark gives us an interesting perspective on this man, this scribe. He tells us that this one scribe has seen this dispute unfold between Jesus and the other scribes, but that he believes that Jesus answered them well. This guy is impressed perhaps even persuaded. And so being pulled and attracted toward this wise rabbi and the profundity of his teaching, this scribe asks a sincere and searching question. What is the heart of the law? What is the most important commandment? Though the scribe's question is no doubt sincere, it's not spontaneous nor without context. Discussions of exactly this matter, whether or not there was some unifying principle, some single commandment that undergirded all 365 prohibitions and 248 commands of the Torah, that was a live conversation in first century Judaism. And there are many different and competing schools of thought. So the scribe is inviting Jesus into this theological discussion. He's not trying to trip Jesus up, but he is trying to determine where he stands. What's Jesus's philosophy of law? To what school of Torah jurisprudence does he belong? So Jesus takes the scribe's question with utmost seriousness. He honors the the sincerity of this man with a response of sincere wisdom. And this is also a chance for Jesus to set the record straight. There were no doubt many rumors circulating about this new radical rabbi, his idiosyncratic interpretation of the law, and his, shall we say, complicated relationship to the official teachers of the law. But Jesus' intent is to clarify and demonstrate his absolute devotion and commitment to Torah. So here he goes. Asked for a single commandment, Jesus gives two. Though we quickly see these two commandments are inseparable and complementary, two parts of a single command, a double or twofold love commandment, as it is sometimes called. The first comes from that most sacred prayer of historic and modern Judaism, the Shema which we just heard from in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jewish piety demanded that these words be prayed at least twice every day. They form a central movement of the synagogue liturgy. They're the words that parents recite to their children as they put them to bed. The Shema, this prayer, is so central, not just for Judaism, but for Christianity, for two reasons. First, 
It grounds the moral and spiritual obligations of God's people in the very character of God. God is one. There is no other. See, the power of Jewish and Christian ethical life lies in the radicality of this confession. There is one God. Now, to confess monotheism in any day is subversive because it is a refusal to worship the idols of the age, be they a pantheon of gods, a semi-divine Caesar, or the modern gods of money and power and fame. The second reason the Shema is so critical is exactly related to this first. Because there is only one God, Love must be singularly and comprehensively directed toward him. If there are competing gods, whatever they may be, then we cannot afford to give total devotion to any one of them. You cannot serve two masters. But there is only one, and so only one deserving of our love. So there's an intrinsic connection, in other words, between monotheism and undivided love of God. So Jesus centers the unqualified and unreserved love of God at the heart of the law of Torah. But then he does something interesting, maybe even provocative. He couples this command of the Shema with another love command, this one taken from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This commandment is named as second, but it is not of secondary importance. Rather, it is the second part of the twofold command, which, Jesus says, taken together with the first, compose a single commandment, the simultaneous love of God and neighbor above which there is no other greater commandment. The whole law, in other words, can be mapped on these vertical and horizontal axes. Our relationship with God and our relationship with neighbors. In fact, no command of the law falls outside of this relational context. And because the law is most fundamentally about the health and flourishing of these covenantal relationships with God and with others, it is right and proper to understand each and every particular prohibition and command of the law as an expression of love. Love of God love of neighbor. The two, never being separated, are co-constitutive because rightly loving God always directs us outward to love God's good creation and rightly loving others always directs us upward to praise of the God in whom they exist. Do you see what Jesus has done here? It's quite brilliant actually, if a little bit strange. He's identified law and love with each other. To fulfill the law is to walk in love. And to rightly love is to keep the law. In other words, law is not opposed to grace and love. It is God's gift for our flourishing. 
And love, it's not just a kind of sentimental, vague disposition, nor ephemeral feelings of goodwill and kindness. No, it has concrete content and material obligation. Love does not replace the law or the commands of God's law, but interprets them. To love our neighbors, well, what could it mean but to speak honestly, to not steal or covet, to refuse murder and reject all evil thoughts and ill intents of the heart, to repudiate adultery and be rid of lust and possessiveness and so on and so forth. To love, to really love someone, it's to keep the law towards them, to embody God's righteousness to them. This must all sound quite odd to modern ears because we are used to thinking about love primarily in terms of freedom and law primarily in terms of restriction. And in this imagining, law and love seem to be not just incompatible but directly opposed. So we can only come to resent law because it inhibits the enactment and expression of our loves and desires. We might come to obey law, but only because of essentially utilitarian reasons. That is, it works out better for us in the end if we live in a predictable world of laws and rules. Or we come to obey law out of sheer duty. That is, we'd rather not but we suppress our passions and desires and act according to noble reason. But Jesus re-coordinates law and love. He shows them to be intrinsically related, such that our most devoted and diligent obedience to God's law is an expression of charity toward God and others. And our relationships of love and care with others and toward God are shaped and structured by justice and righteousness and responsibility. Law and love are intrinsically connected because both have their source in God and their full revelation in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law and the incarnation of divine love itself. Now, in teaching us this about law and love, Jesus also gives his disciples and us a new language. He makes possible for us forms of speech and thought we might have thought impossible. Forms of speech and thought essentially unintelligible to most modern people. Forms of speech and thought like this. Your decrees are my delight. They are my counselors. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I cling to your decrees, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. See, I have longed for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. My delight will be in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. All of these from Psalm 119. I mean, can you imagine speaking words like these with total sincerity 
and integrity, really and truly loving God's law. It seems nearly impossible, but this is the miracle of God's grace, actually, that Christ infuses into our hearts a supernatural love of God's law. We will, we long to do God's law. To love God's law, to gratefully receive it, to faithfully keep it, and to joyfully meditate upon it as all the saints of old have done, I want to submit to you this morning that this is a profound witness to the grace of God. It is also profoundly challenging because a whole lot of people today are deeply suspicious about the relevance of God's law for human life and flourishing. And to be honest, they have a lot of reason to be. Divine law has often been used as a weapon or a form of manipulation and control or a source of guilt and condemnation rather than acknowledged as a gift from God that makes our ways direct, our paths full of peace and our loves purified by God's grace. So our response to our neighbor's suspicions about God's law should not be to antagonize them or guilt them for faithlessness or beat them over the head with it in self-righteousness or throw up our hands in exasperation because we think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. No. If we really love our neighbors, then we should desperately want them to love God's law. Just as we confess with the psalmist, my delight will be in your statutes. If we desire for our neighbors to come to see the wisdom and beauty and freedom and delight of God's law, then we must live in such a way that our obedience to God and God's law is essentially evangelistic which is to say, lives that evince the good news that God loves us enough to give us, to teach us his holy statutes and precepts, lives that persuade those around us that our faithful keeping of God's law is not a burden, but blessedness, not alienating, but animating inspired not by duty or obligation, but deep, deep love and trust in the one who ordered the creation and our steps within it in wisdom. So may our lives, our speech, our witness be a testimony to the goodness of the statutes of the Lord, the liberating power of his law, the freedom of his ways. May we proclaim in word and deed that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.